we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And I wanted to talk about a big front page blockbuster story from the New York Post that one of our analysts didn't just break, but actually wrote. This was from last week about the resignation of our ambassador to Haiti last year in the midst of that migrant crisis in Del Rio, where all the people, all the Haitians were camped under the border bridge. And that was reported at the time, but there's actually more to it. And Todd Benzman, who is our border whisperer, as it were, was actually there at the encampment uh, a year ago or so in Del Rio, but also spoke to the ambassador in a kind of follow-up interview to find out what was actually going on. And apparently what happened was very different from what was generally reported at the time. So, Todd, thanks for joining us on this. And if you could give listeners a little background, sort of what was the situation, what was going on in Del Rio about a year ago? Sure. Well, about 17,000 mostly Haitians crossed in very suddenly all at once around the week of September 15, very quickly formed an encampment on the Del Rio side of the Rio Grande under the bridge, the International Bridge, and it immediately became an international media sensation. I mean, you couldn't avoid the visuals on this thing. It was just stunning with all these thousands and thousands of Haitians building makeshift shelters and, you know, how are they going to get fed and, you know, sanitation issues and all the rest of this. And the Biden administration found that it had an immediate political crisis on its hand, as well as a humanitarian crisis, and had decided that it needed to liquidate the camp immediately, as fast as possible. So from about the middle of September to the end of September was the duration of the crisis. The camp was liquidated completely by the end of September. Bulldozers were down there scraping the last of the trash from the camp. Just to be clear, they weren't fixing the border crisis, which this administration has created. They just wanted this particular visual that Fox News, especially, they started it with you know drone cameras was putting on the air. They wanted that particular thing to go away and get out of the news is basically what it amounts to. Is that correct? That's correct. And we, we've seen really good reporting in the meantime since then from the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal from the inside the White House at that time, which showed that there were pragmatists, political pragmatists that were worried about this 
stories impact on these midterm elections coming up, the November 22 elections. Right. Afghanistan had just happened, and they were extremely fearful that this was going to sink the Democratic Party's chances in the midterm elections. So that, that was really what their primary consideration was at that time. And like I said, the response wasn't to actually start enforcing immigration laws generally. It was just trying to make this particular thing go away while the rest of the border continued to be a disaster, but a less photogenic or telegenic disaster. That's right. Because, I mean, the Haitians, and there were also some Africans and some other nationalities in the mix, but the majority of them were Haitians. It was clear on the ground there who they were, had come in because the Biden administration was letting them in earlier than that, and they were being paroled into the country in family units. So they understood that you know, most of these people were coming from Chile and Brazil. They'd been there for years comfortably and working and all is well there in those countries. But when Biden started paroling them in, Haitians in, they all came in one big giant flood. And right there at Del Rio, there's, if I remember correctly, there's dam that doesn't really stick up, but you can walk across it. The water's only a few inches deep. And so they were just walking across that and nobody was stopping them. Right. They call that a weir dam. Right. And the water was fairly low at that time. So you could just walk right across that. And, you know, even if you'd fallen in, you could just kind of wade around and you'd be fine. So they were coming in, they were filling the area under the bridge that way initially, but then they also had a supply problem. So they were allowing the Haitians to leave back to Mexico to buy food and water and, you know, things for bedding. Looked like it was going to be a long-term stay. They all thought that they were going to be allowed into the country, paroled in, just like everybody had before them. So they were coming back and forth, and the authorities on both sides understood that they had to do this, breaking the law every which way in front of everybody, you know, coming back and forth for the resupply. And then inside the camp, the DHS furthered this idea that they were going to get paroled inside the, the country by setting up a process where you take a ticket, like a kind of a carnival ticket, right? and then you wait your turn, and then you get on these buses. And then the buses take you into America. And they were actually doing that initially in the first few days. But then there was this acute concern about the midterm elections. And DHS was authorized to liquidate the camp. And the tactic that they chose to do this was a Trumpian tactic of air deportations all the way back to Haiti. And remember, these people had not lived in Haiti in half a decade, most of them. So the terror of being deported by air all the way to Port-au-Prince was such that thousands of them fled immediately back into Mexico the moment they learned about the first flight's landing. Right. And the interesting point is they were pretending to have come from Haiti. Because you've documented this in your writing extensively, and other people have too. Their documents from Chile and Brazil, I mean, they had asylum there. Their kids were born there. The kids had passports. They threw those away on the Mexican side, disposed of them, so they could pretend to have come from Haiti 
for purposes of asylum. And then, lo and behold, we took their word for it and returned them to Haiti, and they didn't like that at all. So, like you said, they started returning to Mexico. But this policy of flying some of these people, deporting them to Haiti, it wasn't even all of them, but it was enough of them that people were worried about it. That was a decision made at the White House. And if you could give us some thinking about not only that, but also what then happened. And your story was about what our ambassador in Haiti, the capital of Haiti, Port-au-Prince, how he responded to that. Well, the first thing, as we know, the United States cannot deport to another country without its express approval. That's sort of an international you know, norm. Right. You can't just parachute people or land and just dump them off and then leave. And you need the okay. You need some kind of travel documents or authorization. But there was a problem with this in Haiti because the month before, or a couple months before in July, assassins killed Haiti's president. Mm-hmm. And that left a power vacuum, and there was a caretaker successor appointed in probably a couple of days, and his name is Dr. Ariel Henry. And Henry was supposed to just kind of caretake things until November of 2021, when this years-long process was in place to establish a democracy, a true democracy. Right. For various reasons, Haiti's National Assembly was defunct. They hadn't had elections since 2016, and there had been no presidential elections since 2016 also. There were lots of hurricanes and earthquakes and different kinds of upset. And so they were just about ready to go with national elections. In November then. This was in, the last in November year. of 2021, right. the first round, there were going to be two rounds. The very first round, was important round, was going to be that November 7th. Right. And everything was set. But the Biden administration needed an immediate approval to get this camp liquidated fast. And so the Biden administration appointed an ambassador, a special envoy, Daniel Foote, to kind of oversee this and be the U.S. representative during all of this transition. He had just started in July, too, so he was two months into the job. And it was widely reported that you know he resigned over these air deportations because he was just morally offended by them. Like, deportations is terrible. We should let them all into the country was how that was portrayed. But when I interviewed... Daniel Foote more recently for my book, Overrun, to just kind of recall what had happened, he gave me a surprising different story. He said that none of that was actually true the way it was reported. He told me on the record, a recorded interview, double-checked afterwards with him, that what actually happened was the Biden administration ordered that those national elections be canceled. And because we have great influence there, the United States government, we anointed Dr. Henry to be the de facto indefinite prime minister, which if there's not going to be checks and balances on that power, that makes Dr. Henry a dictator for all intents and purposes. Do we know, was that kind of his quid pro quo for okaying the deportations? In other words, did he say, let's dispense with this 
election nonsense, and then I'll let you deport all these people here. Do we know whether there was something yeah. like that? Well, the White House has not responded to my request for comment about this. There's a surprise. Or the New York Post's request for comment, for some kind of a comment. But Ambassador Foote told me that that was a quid pro quo, that we will appoint you indefinite leader of Haiti, cancel the elections, which were canceled on September 27th. Interesting. Right in the same pocket, if you agree to take all the deportees that we want to give you. That was the deal. Right. And that is why Foote said he resigned. He said he resigned because Haitian democracy was once again stolen from the people right on the cusp of finally achieving it. And that they have a dictator again, who's deeply unpopular, according to Foote. And that was what was so morally offensive to him. Remember, this is not a Trump guy. This is a Biden-appointed career foreign service officer, 30 years in the service. So I regard that he has a lot of credibility in what he says. And he was especially offended when he asked for somebody at the White House to give him input. And he was refused. You have no input. We don't care what you think or what you say. This is a decision that's already been made. This is going to be Haiti's leader, and we don't really care what you think about it. And so with that, he just said, I'm out of here. Interesting. And so basically, it's a sign of how desperate the White House was to make this story go away. They basically put the kibosh on this democratization project in Haiti just to make sure they could make this Del Rio migrant camp, this shanty town that was developing, disappear. Exactly. And I mean, really what's surprising about this is just how Machiavellian that move was. They're not denying it, but right. they did it for an administration that is on the Democratic Party side that constantly talks about how countries like Haiti and Haiti itself are so often victimized by greater powers. And it's a black nation. It's a majority descendants of slaves that was recently written about at length by the New York Times as being put into hundreds of years of debt bondage by France and then the United States. So there's been this big argument lately that the United States actually owes Haiti for what it did with the debt bondage circumstance. And so here we have just for a pretty cheap political objective, which is speculative at best. I mean, the midterm elections were 14 months away still at that point. Right. And it's not like they fixed the border. They just made this one thing go away. Just to remind people, I'm going to interject what the story that we're talking about here ran in the New York Post last week, and we're going to have a link to it in the show notes. But it is kind of a preview of an upcoming book by Todd, Todd Benzman, who's our guest. The book is called Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. You can pre-order it now. We'll have links in the show notes for it. The thing I wanted to ask, Todd, is that, look, and I know you agree, want the border enforced. So aren't we being sort of churlish in complaining about the Biden administration at least doing this one little bit of border enforcement? I know they're 
leaving everything else open, but what's the issue for immigration hawks about this? In other words, isn't this something maybe we should be applauding? Well, at the time when the deportations were happening, I pointed out early what the immigrants were telling me about the power, uh, the potency of air deportations. Right. And it's not just for Haitians, but what this shows, what that whole episode really shows is how deterrence and to create consequence for illegal immigration, how impactful that really is. Right. That the administration understood it too. And that was something that also, when they needed something to happen, they went right to the Trump playbook which actually was the Obama playbook before Trump had it because Obama used it. Which is just the common sense deterrence playbook. I mean, it's not even, like you suggest, it's not even a Trump thing. It's when there are consequences, people respond and change their behavior. And I think what really stood out from this is the cynicism. The administration, the Biden administration says there's nothing you can do about the border. And yet when political imperative impinges, they are able to do something and they understand that enforcement works. What that highlights is they're choosing not to enforce the border elsewhere and they know that it could work if they did it. Well, if anything showed that more flagrantly, it was the Del Rio migrant camp. Right. But really that episode was part of a broader story that I write about extensively in the book about an insurgency that took place in the White House. That was just sort of the opening battle. Interesting. Where there were pragmatists inside the White House all along, up until recently, that were putting initiatives out there to slow this mass migration. They were doing things like forcing other countries to enact visa restrictions by air. Right. Because there were all these Cubans who were flying over the Darien Gap and into Mexico for you know, shortcutting their way through. And the people that were requiring visa restrictions in places like Costa Rica and Belize and places that there were never visa restrictions before on these nationalities, all of a sudden they, they you know, blocking up, you know, hundreds of people were stuck in airports. And, you know, that was all from these White House pragmatists who were incredibly fearful of the midterm elections and how this was going to play in the midterm elections. So ultimately, as I write in the book, the insurgency inside the White House failed. Oh, really? In other words, the pragmatists lost out? Pragmatists lost out. The progressives won the war, in, in my estimation, at least so far. And so that that's why we still have the mass migration crisis just rolling. I mean, it's at full war down there, but there were these episodes. These air deportations were not limited just to Haiti. Mm -hmm. But what people didn't understand, I write about in the book, is that the administration had started air deportations two months earlier before the Haiti migrant crisis under the bridge, and they were targeting Guatemalans and Hondurans, Mm -hmm. flying them home. Interesting. And those are continuing to this day, actually, but they really peaked out. And then they started them up again with Haitians and the Haitian deportation flights are still happening too. But alas, there are too many other breaches in the dam 
for any of it to really be effective in an overall way. But the deportation by air had been a White House pragmatist initiative even before the deportations to Haiti with the migrant camp. And the interesting thing is, you know, the administration was always kind of pulling its punch and sending mixed messages. That's why the sort of sporadic enforcement stuff they did never really worked. It never really stuck. I mean, the deporting people to Haiti from the camp in Del Rio worked, but there hasn't been a kind of across-the-board consistent enforcement stance. And because of that, they've let go into the United States well over, at this point, maybe 1.2 million border jumpers since the administration took over. So that completely negates any message that any kind of sporadic occasional enforcement measures that they undertake is sending. It's uh, We're sending mixed messages. People get through. You wrote a piece about how selfies are one of the things that drives migration. You know, people they make it across the border, they're released by the Border Patrol, and they take selfies of themselves, you know, with their family that they joined or whatever it is. And that drives more illegal immigration, regardless of the kind of once in a while half hearted enforcement measures they undertake. That's right. The average immigrant who's in route, what they're looking for, what they're what they're hoping for is lifetime intelligence from the actual border by people who are upstream or you know, right. a trail already. And they get that through the selfies. And so immigration enforcement and deterrence, I believe, is kind of an all or nothing right. proposition. I mean, it has to be universally applied all the time because if it's not, the immigrants downstream will look, they'll zero in on the one channel that's left open and they'll they'll run for it. They'll make a break for it. It's just human nature to do that. Right. And that's what has been the problem with the Biden administration all along is that they had this pragmatist inside the White House. It's been well reported. You don't even have to take my word for it. You know, the three big papers have all reported on this. Sure. But what they did, it was opposed in too many other places with too many other policies that sent the selfies back down trail. And so they're still coming. Right. So did this special representative guy, the State Department person who resigned over the Haiti issue, did he have any thoughts about immigration in general? He did, yeah. Uh, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me was, you know, he made the point that the administration has emphasized a, an overarching strategy that they call addressing root causes, right. which are the drivers, the push factors from you know, mainly the three Central American countries in the Northern Triangle, which are the big sending countries, but you know Haiti's a big sending country now too, that the democracy that they scuttled there was their one hope ah. to address root causes in Haiti. Right. And by scuttling it for this speculative short-term political gain of the midterm elections was just outrageous to him. He felt like if they would have just allowed this to go forward, that the new government in Haiti would be able to very quickly make gains in addressing root causes of out immigration with an E. Right. 
which is, you know, we're seeing it today in the news. I mean, they, there is no security. The national police doesn't really exist. And so gangs have taken over cities and neighborhoods and the government has no ability to really provide security for, you know, job growth or industry or really anything. But if they had allowed the democracy campaign to advance, maybe by now, a year later, things would be a lot different and fewer Haitians would want to leave. Interesting. And that was his point. Yeah. I mean, that's speculative too, but the fact remains the administration is talking about root causes and then is undermining its own efforts right. to address right. those root causes. So it really does, the whole incident really does highlight how kind of confused and cynical and directionless the administration is when it comes to controlling the border. I mean, ultimately, they just can't bring themselves to do what they really need to do to enforce the law. But nonetheless, they end up running around in these kind of desperate last-minute efforts. When something blows up in their face, they respond to it instead of fixing the problem more generally. Yeah, and the the cynicism is just really stark here. I mean, you can't get more Machiavellian than than that. And especially, you know, I think that the big victim here is, you know, Haiti, once again, is victimized. And this time it's not by France or the big American bankers or anything. It's the Democratic Party and the White House. Right. This current White House did this to Haiti for, for what? Right. So we have been talking about a front page story from the New York Post last week, written by Todd Benzman, of our own Todd Bedsman from CIS. And the thing he's writing about is a kind of preview adapted from a particular part of his upcoming book called Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History, where if I'm explaining this in one sentence correctly, let me know. But basically, you explain why the whole border crisis is happening. This Del Rio thing is, is one piece of it, but just generally how is it that Biden created this disaster at the border? Uh, that's exactly right. And also, you know, amazingly, there is dispute over whether anything unusual is even happening. Now. Yeah. The border is secure, as the vice president says. <laughs> that's right. And as I like to say, you know, if you're um, an alcoholic, the first way to fix it is to acknowledge you have a problem, right. as they say. And they can't do that. We can't even get that. And so I think the book really is a document that you know establishes, yes, we have a problem on the border, and it's a, a historic one. It is it's a problem that is beyond anything in the American experience. And I even argue that it goes beyond Ellis Island, which holds a prominent place in immigration history in the United States, storied. I think this one will be just as storied one day as well. And it's a political crisis that the Biden administration itself is largely responsible for. Absolutely. I track this to day one, inauguration day. The day before inauguration, nothing was happening. The day after inauguration, it was on. Right. When the book is actually published, we'll have you on again and talk more generally about the book. But I'll just remind listeners again, the book is called Overrun by Todd Benzman, B-E-N-S-M-A-N, and we'll have a link in the show notes to pre-order it. 
And we'll also have a link to the front page New York Post story that Todd wrote based on an incident in the book. But the book is obviously a much broader look at the whole border crisis. So thank you, Todd, for coming in. I definitely wanted to shine some attention on this given the prominence it got in the New York Post. And when the book is finally published, do we know the publication date for sure yet, or is that still a little bit up in the air? I think it's a little bit up in the air. So it'll be later this fall at some point, but you can pre-order it now, and pre-orders obviously help, gets the attention of publishers, uh, sort of high, underlines the importance and the public desire for the book. So we'll have you on when the book is out as well. In the meantime, again, Overrun is the name of the forthcoming book by Todd Benzman, who's joined us today. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. And finally today, I just wanted to talk a little bit about this Martha's Vineyard incident. The governors of Texas and Arizona have been busing illegal immigrants to New York and then Washington and Chicago for a while now, and that's gotten a decent amount of press. I think Governor DeSantis of Florida maybe figured they were showing him up and, you know, what could he do to kind of one-up them? Because, uh, you know, these were really far more effective political stunts than I had expected. And as everybody must know by now, he flew 50 of these illegal border crossers that the Biden administration just released onto the streets into, into Texas. And they made their way to Florida, but they, they were sort of at loose ends. They didn't have anything in particular, nowhere in particular to go. And so Florida offered them flights to Martha's Vineyard, a uh, wealthy enclave, basically a summer enclave for the rich on much of the East Coast. And it got all the hysterical reactions you would expect, even more hysterical than the reactions already we had seen from the mayors of Chicago and Washington and New York. And the question that came to me is, you know, why was the reaction so over the top? from these places. Why didn't these sanctuary cities just say, okay, hey, great, you know, this is a worst sanctuary city. We welcome everybody. Thank you very much, Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis and Governor Ducey. We'll take it from here. You know, and it just wouldn't have been a story or as much of a story. And the numbers just aren't that big. I mean, um, I think altogether, the whole number of the buses, including the tiny handful of people sent to Martha's Vineyard, adds up to, I think the last time I checked, it was 11,000 people. That's to all three of those cities and Martha's Vineyard. And, you know, that's a day and a half worth of illegal border jumpers. It's, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. My sense is the intensity, almost derangement of the reaction, comparing it to the Holocaust and calling for kidnapping prosecution. I mean, it's all absurd. It's a reaction to being mocked. Because mockery is a powerful political weapon. And that's essentially what was happening here. It wasn't even just a matter of exposing the hypocrisy of sanctuary cities, which it did. And hypocrisy is real and, and you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But it seems to me the reason a lot of these sanctuary people, mayors and media figures and other reacted is because they understood they were being mocked. They were being made fun of. And, you know, all of these memes that came out of the Martha's Vineyard thing, there was this one, and if you're not on Twitter, you may not have ever seen this, but there's a scene from Simpsons where they've taken some stills out and 
Homer Simpson is kind of melting back into some bushes. He disappears. That's turned into a vehicle for all kinds of political comments. And so one of them was Homer Simpson holding a sign like you see in a lot of lawns in liberal neighborhoods. You know, in this home, we believe love is love and no human being is illegal and all are welcome, this kind of stuff. Holding one of those, disappearing into the shrubs, into the bushes, and then reemerging from them, holding a sign saying these premises under electronic surveillance, no trespassing. Again, highlighting the hypocrisy of the sanctuary mindset, the sanctuary perspective. And the hypocrisy is part of it, but my point is I think the reason the reaction was so over the top was that they understood they were being mocked. They were understood that they were, they were being made to look ridiculous. And as the uh, director, uh, Waltz, from The Godfather says, a man in my condition can't afford to be made to look ridiculous. That, I think, is the real reason behind the crazed reaction to these very small, really very modest efforts at sending some illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities. It's, it's, it's not a solution, you know, as a practical matter to the problems that are faced by Texas and other states, but it's a political stunt. And I say stunt in a neutral sense because politics is partly theater. This was theater that was extraordinarily effective, far more effective than anything Governor Abbott or Governor DeSantis could have dreamed of, and far more effective than I imagine. I was quite skeptical, but these guys have gotten themselves elected to political office. They know more about this kind of thing than I do. And if I had any advice here for other people, whether they're elected officials or activists or others, I would always take a page from Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. I forget. I think it's rule number five. I probably I could be wrong on that. Mockery is the most powerful weapon. There's no answer to it. There's no response to it. So for those who are thinking about how they can effect political change, make fun of your opponents in such a way that catches on and works, and you may enjoy some success. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. We are not in Martha's Vineyard, actually. We are slaving it away in the swamp in Washington, D.C. If you have any comments, suggestions, criticisms, what have you, probably the best way is just to contact me on Twitter, Mark S., as in Stephen, Mark S. Krikorian, and feel free to follow me there. I have plenty of snark and sarcasm on a whole variety of issues, and I hope you will tune in next week.